um, there's nothing that we can do that would push him away. Instead, the opposite, he pursues us. The hound dog of heaven, I've heard him being called once before, which is just awesome. So I like this particular talk. This talk really is one that I wrestled with and desired to understand for many years. Um, so to kind of just start it out, there's the reality is that um, we can look at the root causes, which we did. There's plenty of books on understanding how things go awry and go strange in our lives. And, and as I mentioned earlier, homosexuality at its core is a relational problem, and therefore there are relational solutions. That's good news. If it was a sexual problem, my brother, when he found out, said, well, you just need to have sex with a woman. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> and if, I, if you remember the parallel, the eight-year-old boy that needs to grow up, that would be like telling an eight-year-old, do you want to be a man? Have sex with a woman, that'll do it. We automatically go, duh, that's not how it's done. There is a process that needs to take place, a slow and methodical one. It's not a light switch, nor is it a simple prayer, like Cy Rogers, my friend, says um, he wishes there was a genius, says one, two, three, uh, go be free, date and mate. <laughs> you know, ding, it's like, like there's a magic wand of sorts that make this happen. And so the question still remains in this regard is how does change happen? How does this thing take place? And to what degree? What does it even look like? What are we looking for? Um, so we go to seek the deeper issues of our heart and mind. I, I was so desperate for this. So I kind of understood some of the nature of it. But I'm like, hey, what now is the process? Show up to group on Tuesday night, read a couple of books. Around that time, I went to a Benny Hen uh, whatever it is, convention when he was in town. Um, I don't subscribe to his theology. I don't know where you're at with it. But one thing that was struck out was I was watching him heal these people of all these different physical things. And I remember sitting in the back room just angry, angry at the fact that I'm crying out in my heart that God would heal this area of my life. And why can't I just get someone to wave their coat <laughs> in front of me and make it go away, make it better? But as I said... There needs to be a process of filling needs rather than wishing them away or praying them away. When I was on Geraldo in 1995, I was sitting there, and when it was my turn to speak, he, Geraldo brings a mic and slams it in my face, and he goes, all right, here's this guy, Jason. He says he was gay, and now he's not. And he said, so what happened to you? Did you get hit by lightning or what? That was his quote. And I was like, and, you know, you get on a show like that about five seconds to answer a, a, a message that takes a bit longer. So I'm glad I have a little bit longer this morning to answer this question. But it's true that God is in the power of restoring lives. When we looked at that chart, we have these different categories. That final category, if you will, is the one we're addressing here, this transformational process where it's not simply surrendering uh, and, and, and a, a conversion, if you will, of what you were to what you are, but an ongoing process of sanctification, a working out your salvation with fear and trembling, and dare I say, and this is the controversial element, an actual desire change. This isn't something that you have to particularly live with the whole life of, I still have these desires, but I'm going to choose right behavior. Still a good thing, but can there be more? And so we know, even around that song, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And God is in the process of restoration and healing. He's, he's very good at it, by the way. <laughs> he's really good at it. 
But one thing that's fascinating with God and his healing process is it, it requires our participation. <laughs> that's the deal. We need to participate in his work. So I want to walk through and just kind of give you a highlight of what this looks like. This is, and, and I know your minds are going to say, it's like, well, wait a minute, this applies to everyone. Yes, <laughs> it does. There's a goal in this. One, bring attention to this issue in a redemptive way that's universal in the Christian faith. But the other is to recognize, don't treat them and they anymore. We need the Lord. We have an, a, a hunger to fill a void. He is the answer. Now, what is the actual process? Because the light switch thing and a simple prayer getting the d demon away from you is not the answer. So what is? What's the process? So hopefully this will be helpful for your own life. It will be helpful as a minister of an area over these individuals and any individuals walking through it. But also, and I know a lot of people in the room are like, but I've got gay friends. What do I do with them? I would encourage you to make almost all these points a point of prayer for them. So although they're not ready for this, it can be a prayer for them. Does that make sense? So let's do that. We'll walk through it. It'll make sense as you're actually walking through it. But So transformation. In order for transformation to actually occur in our lives, in the lives of those who are struggling with life-dominating sin and confusion, there needs to be first a, a responding to God. Yeah, right? There's a sense of God is calling. Are we going to respond? The men and women we work with at Portland Fellowship are people who want to be there. Uh, it's the reason they first walk into these doors is because they are experiencing some conviction between their sexuality and their faith. There's a conflict there, and they want the Lord to, to rule out over it. And, um, and I'm grateful that God does this and he calls us because it's his great pursuit of us that convicts us and disciplines us. So it is, as it's written, it is the love and compassion and kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So this is the, this is the nature of it. It's not his wrath and his anger that leads us to repentance, but his kindness. When he's kind to me as I walk through this, and what a great thing we can reflect to the loved ones in our lives is that we can model that, be ambassadors for Christ, that we are going to show kindness and love that will lead someone to repentance. And honestly, and I'd love to hear if anybody, uh, over the years I've not heard anybody say this, but I have never met someone who beca uh, began an authentic transformational process with God and received his love and his grace because they lost a debate with me. All right? I won the debate. Now they go, you're right, I love Jesus. <laughs> I've never seen it. That's not how it works. And yet, for some reason, we default to debates. We default to, I want to be right. I need to be right in this situation. We like the right part. And I'd, I think it would be good to first get to this place where we are listening and responding what God is doing in our lives and then presenting that for others and allowing them to want to open that door and receive it. So our job is to respond to him when he calls. Hebrews 3.15 says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. And unfortunately, this is a reminder all the way through the transformational process. Well, it's a good thing, I suppose, because each element of transformation could be a little bit of a wall up. The reality is there's people who are ambivalent. We know that word ambivalent. You're, not, you're neither here nor there. You're just kind of like, eh. 
You're neither hot, you're not cold, you're just kind of lukewarm kind of thing. What's wrong with ambivalence? <laughs> but yeah, he gots it, he hates it. But I think, but God hates and, and it spits things out because I believe it's an offense and it, it ultimately is not for our good, right? So if you were to do the old-fashioned junior high wall sit, you guys remember that where you get down and you're neither standing nor you're sitting up against the wall. You keep your hands up. How long do you, how long can you do that? Everybody get up your seats. I'm just kidding. <laughs> if you're over the age of 60, 80. No, okay, what's the problem with that? It's uncomfortable. What else is an extreme problem with that? Yeah, support. You're able to be toppled over rather quickly and easily. All it takes is the enemy's little nudge, practically, and you're done. You're over. And so he's like, stand up. Stand up, face the Lord, trust in him. Do not be ambivalent in this process. It requires this ongoing process of choosing to not procrastinate or be ambivalent in this process of, of, of of uh, healing. Joshua says, choose today who you're going to serve. There was a Friday night, even in the midst of this ministry, about a year into my healing process at the Portland Fellowship, when it was a Friday night, and I was, I was so desiring of, of relationship. I wanted the counterfeit. I just did. I'm like, I, I knew there was a gay community just a couple miles away. Get on my bike, head on down there. And I was about to, and I was crying out to God, I don't want to, but it's there. And, and it was one of those times where the Lord actually said something audibly, if you will. It was so loud, it was audible. And it was simply that. It was crazy. It was, it was Jason, choose today who you're going to serve. You're going to serve your flesh. You're going to serve me. And although this was, a, this was a powerful moment of choosing him and, and growing in my maturity, but I said, I do, my flesh desires that but I desire you more, and so I'm staying put. And I cried a little bit more and felt like the whole world's out partying but me because it's Friday night, right? And it was fascinating because even just, I think it was a half an hour later, a good friend called me and said, hey, we're, a bunch of us are hanging out. Come on over. And I wept even harder after that. I was like, God, you know, I almost went for the counterfeit. So wait upon the Lord and choose him and wait for him to come through, and he does. So we have to respond to him. We have to wait for him and trust him in this. The next thing, and this is not particularly necessarily order, is that transformation demands full surrender. We talk about surrender from time to time, but let me unpack this for a moment. There is a difference between commitment and surrender. It's actually common in the Christian life to talk about commitment. You commit your life to Jesus I commit my, or I will commit in my, in my walk, being a good Christian, I commit not to get drunk again, I commit not to gamble, I commit not to cheat on my wife, I commit not to look at the pornography again, et cetera, et cetera, and in and, uh, an attempt to overcome and deal with this. So the definition of commitment is a promised devotion, a pledge, or a dedication. This is a good thing, right? Commitments? Yeah, of course. It's, but what's the problem with commitment? What's that? You, we break them. How many of you do New Year's resolutions? How many are broken on January 2nd? All right. So because the reality is it's something we decide for ourselves. I commit to da-da-da. I commit this long. I commit to stopping this behavior. I commit. The decision still lies with us. We're the ones still in control. Again, not a bad thing in its right context. 
But it's still, let's call it for what it is. It's about me and my choices, my overcoming. I committed often in, in trying to find freedom from homosexuality to not think and fantasize about a man in my mind and heart. And then a month later I did. Looked at pornography, same thing. Believe a lie, same thing. Well, so we fail when we commit because it's all about us. We, and we tend to try to commit for various reasons because we're actually, frankly, tired of living a certain way. We are tired of hurting people. We just hurt. Uh, we don't, we've got caught, right? It's like, okay, I won't ever do that again. And even a, and a sex addict, actually a true sex addict, will commit and commit and then fail again and again because they truly are powerless over this decision. They need other people in their life to help them through it. Again, commitment's good. We read in Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord. But what needs to happen first? Surrender. Surrender is different than commitment. Surrender is to give up to give up or relinquish possession or control of something, an abandonment of my legal right, to hand over, to give up a fight, an act of declaring defeat of our own will. So really, ultimately, scripture talks about surrender, not commitment. But surrender is scary, and it's an act of faith, isn't it? It's declaring, Lord, I trust you even when my feelings say otherwise. I trust you with my heart. I will trust you with my relationships. I will trust you with my body. Even though I don't feel like a man, I feel more like a woman. I trust you in what you say, not my feelings. I trust you with my food, my finances, my future, etc., etc. I trust you with it all. It's yours. And again, it's, it's, it can be easy to commit and promise without truly committing or truly giving over control to the Lord. Again, surrender is scary. So one night in, in my process, I went to a church service. And up until then, I was making some very good decisions about living a right life and not going certain places in the city, et cetera, et cetera. But I had a fantasy life going on. There was something still percolating and growing in my heart that I could run off to. And it was at that point where I came to this service and it was a true surrender, true surrender of, of what God has called me to lay this down, choose not to engage in that fantasy again and watch me restore and heal you. And it was that night when I said, I'm going to lay that down. I'm going to believe that you're going to completely transform my life as I surrender this area of life that's holding on to it, which kind of makes sense in general. Can an alcoholic be free from alcoholism if they don't put down the bottle? All right, so there is a behavioral change that comes with surrender. I, uh, behavioral modification in and of itself for the sake of it, people are very much, especially in the Christian culture, absolutely against. I, I think there's a place for it, but only in context of giving to the Lord, behaving correctly. I can say this because I have children. Sometimes they don't want to do what I do just because they love me, and I know they love me with all their heart, but they'll still disobey. So sometimes it's not just, if you love me, you won't do it. It's don't do it because you love me. And so because of that choice, they can make that decision. And that was mine at that point. So commitments are then necessary after surrender. Commitments take the form of reminders, accountability, new disciplines. Commitments will keep us continue to keep our areas of our lives at, at really at the foot of the cross, where we see the most ultimate act of surrender ever performed, right?
we find in Romans chapter 2. But Luke 9, 24, Jesus says, If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. He's basically saying that surrender is not an option. It's a basic aspect of being a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is about, right? Dying to self, living for Christ. Can we wrestle and struggle with that the rest of our life? Yes, and we will. But this always coming back to the foot of the cross, say, I surrender this before you. One of the things that happens each year, as I mentioned earlier, at Portland Fellowship is a retreat. And on Saturday night of that retreat, we have a surrender service. And that surrender service is probably the most powerful thing that happens throughout the year in the sense that people are to bring some object that represents the thing in their heart that has a foothold that they need to surrender before the Lord. And then they confess that publicly and we pray for them. And some of these surrenders are just amazing. You heard earlier the gravy, uh, gravy can, but uh, this one gal came up one year and she told this story about the hush money, a $5 bill that the man gave her to, to not speak of what he did to her. And uh, she uh, didn't have the exact same $5 bill. She had the one that represented it. And she goes, I'm tired of holding on to that lie. I'm tired of making it my fault. I'm surrendering this before the Lord and, and finding freedom from this. No longer will this man have power over me over this stupid $5 bill. We had another guy down the road who, um, who brought his gun to the, re to the retreat. Freaky. But, and he surrendered it. I mean, it was like a $300, $500 gun. Um, and it was a representation, actually the thing, that he was planning to kill himself with. And uh, he said, I'm, I'm no longer, that's no longer an option for me, period, plain and simple. Doesn't mean I might wrestle with a feeling or a thought or a temptation to go there, but I cannot and will not engage in that. Why? because it's not mine anymore. I relinquished my right to it, period. So when I relinquished my right to the pornography in, or the fantasies in my head, and, and Satan at those times would come back and say, hey, why don't you just revisit that fantasy? My actual response, no kidding, that's not being spiritual here, was out loud, I can't, even if I want to, because it's not mine. It's just not mine. Again, it doesn't mean you won't be totally tempted to do so, and maybe even at times start to fall into it, the moment the Spirit of God reminds you of that Ebenezer, if you will, that moment in the sand where you said, this is no longer mine to carry, this is the Lord's, you begin to walk in freedom. And so what is it that we need to surrender? What are those things? Well, obviously some of the things I mentioned, but I think with people who are struggling with any kind of sexual identity or identity issues, I think there are lies that people hold on to about their identity. So one of those things about what needs to be surrendered is false identity. When we hold on to the false identity, we don't make room for the new one. Isn't that just kind of common sense, right? We hold on to something that's false. Where is God going to be able to work in that? And this is my primary issue with column B on that form. Yes, you are choosing obedience, but why would you align yourself with any label that is not of God? And if it's because your feelings or thoughts, again, that's, that's to be surrendered. Feelings and thoughts you may not have total control over, but you do have control with your will in conjunction with the Lord. And so 
The idea behind individuals who might hold on to that with the gay Christian type thing is to say, well, I feel this way, therefore I'm being authentic and, and real about my position even though I'm choosing obedience and abstinence. Well, that would be like you men in this room who had struggled with heterosexuality, have you ever desired to commit adultery? And if so, why are you not labeling yourself a non-practicing adulterous Christian? Right? Why? I mean, what? It's like, once you start doing that too, and this is my personal experience more so than anything, is I watch people who hold on to an identity but abstinence eventually begin to creep into that allowance. Because if Satan already lies to you, say, this is your identity anyways, this is who you are. It's just a matter of time before you give into it. And so we have to surrender this false identity. And, and what the enemy says about us, the enemy desires to say that we are not true sons and daughters of the king. And so we must address those lies and confront them. The second thing is that we need to surrender the locked room. So what I mean by that is that there are, we tend to surrender our lives, but then we have little rooms of our heart that are like, oh, this one's for me. This little escape's for me. This little thought's for me. This unforgiveness is for me, et cetera. And, and it's kind of, in a sense, and I like this parallel of it being kind of like the high places in the Old Testament. There were 39 rulers in Judah and Israel, and eight of them attempted wide form re reform. Only two of them were able to pull down the high places. That's bizarre to me, even of the godly kings. Why only two the high places? It was tough. It was hard. It was way up there. I, it requires us to go to that place where we're not going to hold on to anything. I met with a guy in counseling a few years back who said, yeah, I've given up everything. I'm free from everything. I'm walking in victory. And, uh, and then later in the conversation, he's talking about this, this thumb drive that, has, uh, that he buried in his backyard. And I was, I was no joke, no example. I said, well, what was on the thumb drive? And he was like, well, it's pictures of my ex-lover. And I said, well, wh why would you have him buried? And he's like, well, if I ever actually need to go see him for whatever reason or, you know, just want to remind or whatever, that's an example of this sense of locked rooms. Like, it's mine. Th this one isn't fully yours. No, it's time to surrender. And an example of the surrender of that is a hammer, right? <laughs> it's a hammer. And, and the ceremonial part is powerful because it's dedicated to God in the company of others to receive prayer and have a moment where you have a stake in the ground against the enemy's schemes. So we must take over those things and remove not only the room, but the holding on to the key, if you will, proverbial key that we hand over to God via others or surrendering them. So we must surrender. We must surrender the familiar, our Egypt. Our Egypt, what's your Egypt? So just in a brief nutshell, the Egypt we're talking about is the actual Egypt found in the story of Exodus. And the people in bondage, God's people were there and God was wanting to lead them out and while they were in this journey toward the promised land, they are in the desert. And, and what happened in the desert? Lots of doubt, lots of complaining. There were people who were like, well, back there, at least we had food to eat. So we're heading back. Some wanted to go back. And so we have to recognize our own personal Egypt. It was possibly comfortable there. Yeah, you got your, you're in bondage, but at least you had, you know, three meals that you could depend on. This whole desert thing, you don't know where you're going, and you have to trust God every day for something. I'm like, every day you got to wait for manna to show up or water from a rock? Like, no thanks. I want to go back where I can get it and know it's going to be there. 
And the reality is we must trust God in this journey to experience the blessings that come from it. And so how often do we re return back to the very things that keep us in bondage, whether it be relationships, pornography, vices of all sorts? Proverbs 26.11 highlights this, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats their folly. And so let's not return to our vomit, <laughs> right? It's disgusting, by the way. It's not worth it. Brings no good thing from it. So some of us have to make a choice to stop and just honestly make a choice. I'm done with it. Some of us, and let's get real about it, need intervention. Like I mentioned about sexual addiction. When it becomes a physiological thing and you are truly powerless over an act of your will because you've compromised yourself that much, you have to include other people in it. So don't kid yourself to think, I'll do better next time. I'll do better. I can do it by myself. He wants us to do this with one another. And so we recognize that we're putting off the old, we're surrendering these things, we're leaving Egypt, and then we're putting on the new. We're not talking about sin management. We will fail. We cannot hope to heal if we continue in those destructive choices. Again, the alcoholic will never find freedom. Alcohol, the gossiper will, gossiper will never be free if they keep gossiping, right? So there is a measure of stop these behaviors so that God can work deeply in your life. And Colossians 3, 5 highlights this. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all these things, such as anger and rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its, of its creator. Again, true transformation requires true surrender. Let's not kid ourselves any other way. Surrender it. But remember, you're not surrendering something just so you're empty, but God will give you something all the more better. Space for it. Transformation requires difficult, difficult work. I like this quote from Thomas Apopka of Christian Faith and Same-Sex Attraction. He's an Eastern Orthodox reflection. He just highlights that it requires, this is what transformation requires, painful remembering, blessed mourning, sincere forgiving, ceaseless praying, and the courageous acceptance of one's providential destiny caused and conditioned by sin. It demands, and I like that word. Some people don't <laughs> love it. It demands a firm and unwavering resolve to take full responsibility before God and before one's desires and actions. It demands heartfelt forgiveness of those who have voluntarily or involuntarily hurt and harmed one. So guess what? This point in the process of healing and transformation is probably the more difficult. This is where people give up. They're, it's too painful. The pain starts to reveal itself. The, you said goodbye now to this thing. You've surrendered it. You've chosen to remove the locked door. You're, you're choosing not to go back to Egypt. And now the pain that led you to those things in the first place will begin to surface. It is in those painful moments, however, where most people will, will report, including my own life, that I have the most profound and deep relationship and connection with God and with others when I'm just in anguish. Even David in the Psalms so many times in his anguish, and yet he ends so many of his songs with a sense of, but God, 
Glory to you for being here, being with me. So it also, uh, at this point, will give revelation to the deeper wounds and the problems, which, again, causes people to, what happens when we experience that? We begin to deal with some kind of the, of the precursors of, of our struggle. We don't like it. Anybody here like pain and suffering, emotional pain and suffering? So when you allow this to take place in your life and actually invite the Lord into it, you've got to ask the question, is this suffering worth it? Is picking up my cross in this regard worth it? Is the character of God in this process trustworthy? These are legitimate and powerful questions. Psalm 139, 23 to 24 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. Who actually wants to do that? <laughs> Who needs to do that? All of us. And to actually be in a place of receptivity. God, search me. This is not going to feel good at all, frankly. It's just not. I know there's area in my life that I'm living selfishly, so, but please search it, reveal it, and allow this to come, come to pen. Remember, this is where you're uncovering and contending with the deeper issues that leads us to sexual dysfunction and dysfunctional relating. It's the hardest part. We don't want to feel we cover it. Even on a, on a practical level, you'll see a very scary thing on the movie. What do you do physically? <laughs> it's like... My kids watching Scooby-Doo years ago. Scooby-Doo is actually really scary. It's fascinating. But they will, they will like hide behind the couch and watch. What are they doing? They're protecting themselves, yet they want to see all at the same time. There was a sense of defensiveness and, and, and connection where you don't want uh, to have to deal with the deepest things. But it's absolutely the time. It has to happen. That moment where God spoke to me that Friday night, and said, choose today who you're going to serve. I reflected on that, and even years later, when I was at a point where it's like, God, is this it? Is this the desert uh, in a different situation? And another time when God spoke to me in that similar way and said, Jason, look how far I brought you. Do you think I'm done with you? Like, in the moment of desert, in the moment of doubt, he has not done the good work that he starts in us. He is faithful to complete it. Amen? And so we have to rest in that. So once you're faced with this reality of the struggle and dealing with the wounds, healing actually can begin. But again, back to the first thing I said earlier on, what I needed from the church is a safe place to do it. It doesn't happen in an unsafe place, period. And even questions, being just present with the person can speak volumes to someone who is struggling, who is in need. I, uh, I don't know if the volume is going to work on this, but I want to play this for you. Um, I was watching 2020 a few years back, and there's a gal who um, is a porn star, and, and Diane Sawyer is interviewing her throughout the whole, the whole thing. And she's having a great time. She loves what she does. She makes lots of money, et cetera, et cetera, until this one point in the interview when the, when the woman starts to talk about this very painful thing that happened during one of the shoots. I won't get into detail. It's unnecessary. But Diane Sawyer just sat with her and asked her a question or two. No confronting, just getting her to be honest about where she's at. And so hopefully you can hear this. There's the uncovering, the contend with the deeper issue thing. Let's see if we can, might have to turn it up if things are good. Never. 
And the longer we talk to Michelle, the more unnerved I become by something. No matter how ghastly the stories of what she's done, no matter the pain she describes, Michelle is always smiling. When you're telling me about things that really made you suffer, you're still smiling. Because I like to hide my everything, you know? <laughs> and what's real, what's not hidden? <laughs> now I'm going to cry. <laughs> Why? I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I just, I like to hide my real emotions because I want everyone to see how happy I am. But inside, really, I'm not happy. <laughs> I don't like myself at all. If you were to watch the entire interview, she's happy. Thinks it's a wonderful life. All it took was a sensitive, caring person. This is what happens in the pastoral office. This is what happens in the counseling, biblical counseling office. This is what happens with you, with a friend on the porch swing. Going there to the deeper area. She wasn't even wanting that. She didn't want to go there. She was getting interviewed about her profession and trying to brag about it. Until all she did was say, you just shared a painful thing, and you're smiling. That's it. I didn't even say, why are you doing that? It's like just, I noticed this and this. I noticed you're living a life that's this, and yet there's this. Can you share what's going on? And you go to this deeper place of pain and suffering and need, and then you have a whole tremendous amount of things to work through and to, to look at and to bring before the Lord if that person's a believer. She's not. But boy, what a great opportunity to head there. It's like, I, I have an answer for you in your pain. It's, his name's Jesus. This, this is where withdrawal happens. This is, this is the time compared to people who are overcoming drugs, alcohol. It gets painful because you no longer have the substance. Physiologically speaking, your body's freaking out. But you're also now painfully aware of whatever emotional and relational pain is also in your life. And, of course, this is, this is when relapse happens as well because, again, what do you do when you have pain? Anybody got a headache? What's the first thing you do when you get a headache? Right. Instead of sit with your pain, try that next time. Sit with your headache. God, what do you want to show me with this headache? That I maybe need to drink more water, get more sleep. I don't know. We, like, we do not like pain. We want to cover it. And that's this culture saturated with this, this process. And so we, it will be difficult, and without care, without good leadership, without a caring church, this is the point where people bail. This is it. We're out of here. Now, it's not fully a responsibility. People bail because of other reasons, which I would like to talk about here now. For your note-taking, this is also for prayer as well, but also as you care for people and examine your own life. And that is the obstacles of healing and transformation. What are those? Because we have to be honest about them. We have to be attuned to them. We've got to be aware of them, paying attention to when they show up, or else they'll blindside us. So let's take a look at a few of these briefly. The first one I'd like to just acknowledge or highlight is that one is unwilling to acknowledge the reality of the sin, the struggle in their life. So this takes in the form of, in these maybe counseling words, psycho words, but 
they're powerful words in the sense of denial. Denial, this isn't really a problem at all. I'm okay with it. Minimizing, eh, I only went to the bar. It was fine. I just went into the porn store. I didn't buy anything. Justifying, I deserve to escape once in a while. I deserve this drink. I deserve to look at pornography. I had a bad day. I get my space. It's fine. It's okay. You begin to compartmentalize your life. Honestly, I believe this is how senior pastors can pull this off. Senior pastors or people in leadership that preach the word beautifully, lead beautifully, have a wife and children, and then you find out through a scandal they've been doing stuff on the side. They compartmentalize it, minimize it, justify it to be able to, to, to not contend with their, their needs. Um, denying you have a problem or the depth of your sin, it just keeps fertile ground for the enemy to work. My friend Cy Rogers has this quote. He says, do not keep secrets with the devil. Don't do it. Expose them to the light. And so we have to be honest what, at what level. And we all struggle with some of these things. I, I, I just, my, one of my bigger issues now is justifying. Ah, oh, that's fine. If I, I mean, they're not, they're not grievous sins, but boy, they're not, they're not good justifications. And so we do that, search me, O oh God, in this moment and allow me to grow in this. Another, another issue or a roadblock is complacency about the struggle. So this is a fascinating story that's listed in John 5.2. Now there was a, in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic was called, uh, called uh, Beth, Beth, Bethesda, I think there it goes, uh, and which is surrounded by five uh, covered colonnades. Uh, here, a great number of people disabled used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? <laughs> now, there's a bunch of different takes on this passage, but I, this passage is like, do you want to get well? It's like... Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me. No one to help me for 38 years, apparently. When the water is stirred, while I'm trying to get in, someone goes down ahead of me. So not, they're not only helping me, they're getting in my way for 38 years. Then Jesus said to him, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. So a question I think that's important for anyone walking in recovery is simply that. Do you want to get well or do you prefer just coming to support groups? It's like, are you doing the deeper work that's there? Here's one more video I hope it plays that just kind of illustrates this point. Whoa, that's not good. Oh, I don't need this. I'm already late. Somebody will come. Anybody out there? Do you have a phone? No. Sorry. Somebody! Hello! There are two people stuck on an escalator and we need help. Now, would somebody please do something? Nothing else to do.
Uh, I've been serving in pastoral care ministries for many years, and when I see individuals like this, it, I do everything I can to ex express the grace and patience of the Lord <laughs> because it's like, what? God is offering ways out here, many ways out, but you're choosing not to take it. You're finding complacency in this struggle. The other thing is that we need to, uh, as was mentioned, willingness to remove that locked room. So as we talked about, we have a difficulty letting the Lord's into Lord into areas of our life. Don't give the devil a foothold. Remove everything that hinders us from our walk with God. So what is it? Identify it. Share it. Confess it. Another one is that we're unwilling to take the risks that are needed. What are those risks? What is a risk? Well, confession, talking about this with somebody, something that's going on in your heart and your mind that needs uh, to be disclosed. Maybe pressing into a relationship. One of the big risks that I experience over and over again with, with men that are working through this issue is that it's not the end all and it's not the final. In fact, some shouldn't do this, but I think more often than not, reconciliation and communication and authenticity with your dad, with your parents about your life and your struggle and your need for a deep relationship is a vital part of healing and growth. And when people first start that conversation with me, they have every excuse under the sun as to why they can't tell their dad. He's going through a hard time, he's too old, he won't understand, a whole bunch of excuses but it is a risk because what is the risk in this? What's the non-guarantee? Rejection, ridicule, maybe even in today's day and age, like, oh, be gay. Why are you, why are you trying to, we hear that stuff now too. It's like, why are you trying to overcome this? I'll, I'll love you the way, in fact, I prefer you be gay. I don't, I don't know what I mean. It's like you may get into a situation where that happens, but if God is calling you forward, you've got to walk in these risks. Another one is that you would be relying on your own strength. God does work, does his work uh, with and through our identification with him. That's why we can't do it in isolation. We do it in identification with him. It is his strength and power that we find victory. On our own strength, we will continuously fail. And so anybody who says, oh, I can do this, and then the one in others. I a few times get people who come into my office, they say, yeah, I don't need a support group. I don't need to talk to anybody. It's just God and I are going to work through this. And, you know, again, graciously, I'm like, why are you telling me then? <laughs> why are you even here if you and God can work through this? And it begins to be like, oh, yeah, I guess I do need more people. So recognizing we can't do it on our own. We weren't designed to do it on our own. Another is unforgiveness, another roadblock. And this is a powerful one. The power of bitterness only keeps, uh, only continues to cripple the wounded. It keeps you in a place of bondage. I, I don't think I have the video on here, but the Green River Killer. Maybe I'll do it. Yeah, I'll throw it to you. Hang on. Yes. Okay, one more time, just briefly. So the Green River Killer up in Washington is now on trial, and these are the, the victim, uh, victims' families before the sentencing. And this isn't a definition of forgiveness, but it's a power of a, an aspect of forgiveness. You had said your memory, when it comes to all of the women you took, was gone. Our memory is not. In your words, you said that they didn't mean anything to you, but she meant everything to us. 
She was a mother. She was a wife. She was a sister. And we miss her. Gary Ridgway sat there stone-faced as victims' relatives damned him and mocked him. He's an animal. I wish for him to have a long, suffering, cruel death. He's gonna go to hell and that's where he belongs. But then the emotionless facade finally cracked when the father of one of his victims appeared to surprise him with a dose of human kindness. Mr. Ridgway, um, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. You know what's powerful about that is, I think most of you can know about forgiveness is, forgiveness ultimately is about you, right? The idea of being unforgiveness is the idea of drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? You've heard that? This man is free. He's going to go on his life free of lots of pain for losing his daughter. The other one would say, you rot in hell. She's going home angry and will probably stay angry the rest of her life unless something changes. So it's just powerful that forgiveness will set us free. And, and really, the sincerity of it or the seriousness of it is Jesus says, you need to forgive and I will forgive you to walk in forgiveness, and even Jesus on the cross being crucified, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So a woman who's been violated, molested, as Kathy Grace brought up, if she does not get through this process, this roadblock, she stay broken. So forgive her abuser. It doesn't mean to excuse it or forget about it or even trust that person again, but to release. And hopefully, yeah, maybe even down the road for some reconciliation. Christ is in the ministry of reconciliation, so it's a good thing but with wisdom, much wisdom. Uh, disbelief is another roadblock. Mark 9, uh, tw 20 says, the enemy will, um, uh, the, uh, Mark, uh, it doesn't say this, Mark 9, 20 is about the father who says, I do believe, help me with my unbelief. And if that's the best you can do, God loves that. Like, I don't, I don't exactly believe right now, but hey, can you help me with that unbelief so that we can conquer this instead of just not believing? The enemy will lie to those we're seeking hope and healing. They say that this is, God can't do it. This is as far as you're going to go. Sure, he brought you out of Egypt, but he's going to leave you alone, hungry and desperate in the desert. Believe that he's got so much more for us. And then finally, shame. Shame is the very thing that keeps us wounded, a wounded person looking inwardly, avoiding furthering the, their shame. But the truth is that the antidote to shame is vulnerability, to be able to lay it before people and that, of course, is extremely different. I'm talking about negative, uh, heart, uh, problematic shame. The word shame has different ways you can pull it, but I'm talking about the one that just keeps us in bondage inwardly. So once these, these deeper issues are brought to the surface, once you look at these things and you get these roadblocks out of the way, guess what's going to happen? The stuff underneath is going to come up just like the refiner's fire. You know the idea of purifying gold? You, you get the, the, the crap at the top, so what do you do with it then? Scoop it out so what's left is pure and good. And, and then to recognize at this point that we've got to recognize what is permanent, what is unchangeable. My, pa my past pain 
is permanent. What happened is permanent. But my attitude and my, my response to it is not permanent. It is changing in Christ. Transformation, as we can kind of conclude here, is dis, uh, demonstrated in new behaviors and, and desires. Actually, I think I might have missed one, um, and I want to share it because it's not on the screen. So if you want to write it down. First of all, transformation requires staying in step with God's spirit. It's very important. People want how to um, process questions, and they can be very helpful and good. I don't mock it. But ultimately, the Christian life is about trusting God. It's like the, the desert walk, right? He's going to uplift the camp. The cloud's going to go this way. At ni- the, night, the pillar of fire is going that way. And you don't know where and when. You just need to pay attention and stay in step with it. Same thing with the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Not the other way around. Stop gratifying the desires of the flesh and somehow you'll be spiritual. No. And that is the spirit of, of, is of the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified with the flesh with its passions and desires. So since we live by the spirit, let us keep in step with the spirit. So many times people want, oh, what's the next thing to do? And, and it sounds like a spiritual answer, but what is God telling you to do next? Let his spirit lead you in this next step. And this idea is really being dependent on God to know what he wants for us. Um, and ultimately, we have to know. We have to know that once we experience the good things that come by God, we don't want the negative. I think I shared this last night, hopefully not today, kind of blending in my brain here, but this idea of, of an illustrated hunger, all right? Your body's hungry, you're, di- you're dying, and um, you want something to eat, and you haven't eaten for a week, and you find some semi-moldy cheeseburger in a dumpster. Would you eat it? Because she needs to fast for a while. <laughs> she said no. I know this college girl, one, one time when I asked that question, she goes, uh-uh, no way, nuh-uh. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, when's the last time you went 24 hours without eating? Literally, people will kill other people because of the hunger pain so powerful. So, yeah, you'll take off the mold and, and digest it. You would. Even you. Sorry. <laughs> you would do it. But so that same person is starving. Now, the exact same person just comes from a Thanksgiving banquet, ate it all, goes down and sees the exact same half-eaten moldy cheeseburger. Would he eat it? And now you can say no. <laughs> Why? Because why does he not need it? He's full. Very important. Now, as my friend also says, what's true about the body many times is true about the soul. If we are full in our soul. So if I'm not enjoying the banquet table of the Lord or community with you guys in right fellowship, I have to satisfy the need. It will happen, rightly or wrongly, I will choose counterfeit over nothing. So the question is, are you staying in step with the Spirit of God, enjoying his fellowship, eating at his table, communion, the fellowship of the saints, the confession of sins, enjoying each, each other? When you're doing that truly and fully in the fellowship of one another, not to just put your points in for going to church, that doesn't do it. Even when Scripture says it's not about Scripture in and of itself, they look to the Scriptures for eternal life and then deny me, who is the eternal life. So... Those who just study your Bible well, well, good for you, but if you don't love Jesus and pursuing him, 
if you go to church but don't connect with the, with the fellowship of believers, you're going to be hungry. You will be. And either rightly or wrongly, it will be satisfied. I suggest satisfying it rightly. It's good. And then finally, transformation is demonstrated in new behaviors and desires. So godly intimacy, and this is the controversial point as we conclude <laughs> the talks. Uh, intimacy begins to replace the counterfeit and self-perception changes. So once I starved for the cheeseburger because I didn't have the real thing, I needed it and wanted it, but then I go through a process of confession, surrender, healing, deal with the roadblocks that continuously try to come at me, but I want to grow in who I am as a man. Once I experience that clubhouse experience, the proverbial one, in different ways, in different forms, I connect with my dad and the community of men. You men are not so mysterious to me. You're just not. <laughs> it's like, we now, I connect. I feel like one of you. I'm not wondering, do I measure up with them? And because of that, I don't crave it. I don't want it. I don't need to fantasize it. Once I surrendered that fantasy, now I don't even need to have to keep reminding myself I surrendered it because who wants the cheeseburger when you're constantly getting a Thanksgiving-type dinner, right? So if that happens, your actual desires begin to change. This is the controversial part that some would say, you don't actually, you'll always be tempted in that way, just like I'm tempted with heterosexual desires with comparing the two, and I disagree. Heterosexual desires was God's intention. It is his plan. Now you need to corral it and manage it correctly and submit it to God and get married to opposite sex and have sexual union with your spouse. But you will still have a drive. That you cannot heal that or recover that away. But homosexuality mentioned in Romans 1 is unnatural. It cre is created from a hunger and a need that can and will be resolved for many of those walking through this. However, is it a guarantee? Not this side of heaven. Is that the promise? No. The opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. The opposite of homosexuality is wholeness and healing. And that is an ongoing lifetime journey. Some have less damage. Some have more damage. Some have a lot more roadblocks. Some don't. Some people's will is different than others. Some people's actual physiological and neural pathways heal a bit quicker than someone else. I don't know. But the point is, if you trust him and rest in him, and you will always find favor in him and his blessings, even in the midst of that pursuit of sanctification. And so that's my story as I walk through this, is that I once saw men as distant and inaccessible, and I, I responded with an intense longing to be close to them. But through normal relationships, walking with the Lord, allowing him to renew my mind, I've learned that peer love accept me, and that longing simply has diminished. So healing, again, for the record, does not mean you are free from vulnerabilities, temptations, or trials, but you have learned to submit them to the Lord as you grow in strength and maturity, day in and day out. And again, you'll be pleased by it. So I'm not who I was before. I'm still not who I will be. But ultimately, that's the process of healing in our lives. Transformational healing is a dynamic process of becoming becoming whole. Even Paul said, I haven't achieved it yet, but one thing I do, what? Strive on toward the goal, which is Christ Jesus, the Lord. And until we get there, we know that he has begun a good work. He is faithful to complete it. 
has for every one of us. So may God receive all the glory, honor, and praise for his transforming work. Let us be ambassadors for this truth and see lives being transformed. As I said before, this is an internal message for those who want to find victory, but we can take each of these points and bring truth and revelation to the very people who are in need of these things in your personal lives. So with that, we are going to take a break, and then we'll have Q&A. You coming up? Let's uh, take a break till 3, or maybe a little after 3, and then we'll come back and thank you guys for submitting the questions. I've, I think I got just about every one, or a variation of it, onto a slide, and we're going to give Jason a chance to answer those questions. So see you in 15 minutes. <laughs>